DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, a media storm in Benin over new mothers who couldn't pay their medical bills. Although my baby was healthy again, I had to stay in this hospital for two months. I don't even want to think about my bill. It makes me sick. Plus, the UK is a leader in tech, so why is it struggling to address digital poverty? We'll hear from the interim CEO at the Digital Poverty Alliance. There are around 10 million people in this country that don't have the essential basic digital skills to be able to turn on and use a computer. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're going to hear about what poverty looks like in 2023 in different parts of the world and the ways people are trying to get out of it. We begin in the West African country of Benin, where medical costs are high and incomes are low. According to the World Bank, as of 2019, nearly 40 percent of the country's population lived below the poverty line. One hospital set off a media storm recently after keeping new mothers who couldn't pay their medical bills from leaving. Anabaya and Rashida Yenhusu have more. Their report is presented by Elliot Douglas. It happens somewhere in the world every minute of every day. Back in mid-March, four women gave birth to their babies in Benin at the Menontine Public Hospital in the city of Cotonou. But instead of going home with their babies afterwards, they were locked up in the infirmary, denied food and essential afterbirth care. We spoke to one of the new mothers about the experience. She does not want to give her name, but she explained why she was not allowed to leave the hospital until May. Next week, my child will be two months old. As a newborn, he had a breathing problem. Although my baby was healthy again, I had to stay in this hospital for two months. I don't even want to think about my bill. It makes me sick. But thank God my bill has now been paid by the social fund. She would have had to pay a bill of 68,000 francs CFA for her stay in the hospital and the care of her child, the equivalent of about 100 euros. But she and her husband couldn't afford that. In this, she is not unique among new mothers in Benin, explains Alice Gudil Gebohun Avodagbi. She is in charge of the social services at the Menotin Hospital, where the women were detained, and she makes decisions about financial aid. The number of people in need goes up every day. To a certain extent, we can cover the costs of procedures, operations or examinations. Otherwise, we mostly limit ourselves to inpatient hospital costs. There has been an attempt since 2005 to support the needy with a health care fund. The number of people who receive support is around 10,000 per year. There is simply not enough money to go around, says Alice Avadagbi. She has to work out the allocation very carefully. We've developed a system to make decisions on a case-by-case basis. But what do you do when a patient comes in and suddenly the cost of their treatment is 3 million francs? 3 million francs is around 4,000 euros. The healthcare system in Benin has a fundamental lack of medicines, medical technical equipment and specialised personnel. Saturnin Agbani is a lawyer and president of the Beninese Association for Medical and Health Law. He criticizes the fact that the hospital virtually took the four women from Cotonou hostage. If you know the amount of the bill, you need to call the appropriate judge to claim the cost. You can't hold patients against their will. You can't. Equal access to health care and the obligation to provide special protection for mothers and children are enshrined in Benin's constitution. 
Amnesty International also speaks of unlawful deprivation of liberty in these cases. Attorney Agbani is clear with what the law says. The fact that the women were detained is a violation of the Constitution. The story of the four mothers received a lot of media attention and led to widespread uproar in Benin. The government has since intervened and the bills have been settled by the social fund for the time being. The women have been able to leave the hospital with their babies. Fortunately, they're all healthy. But the poor state of healthcare in Benin remains an enormous problem. Elliot Douglas with that report from Anabaya and Rashida Yenhusu. Turning now to Europe. Millions across the UK are feeling the pinch of a cost-of-living crisis, and this is making another somewhat invisible problem worse, digital poverty. That's according to the Digital Poverty Alliance, a coalition of local groups and big names like Barclays, the Institution of Engineering and Technology, and UK tech retailer Currys. They recently launched a national plan to curb digital poverty in the UK by 2030. This is how their interim CEO, Elizabeth Anderson, describes it. We're trying to focus on this through two different ways. So we are absolutely trying to create social change to create the environment where digital poverty can be tackled at a national level. But we are also looking to support real people right now who cannot wait for that social change through a range of delivery projects. I spoke with Elizabeth Anderson late last week to find out more about what digital poverty is exactly and why it's become such a big problem. Elizabeth Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Is there a particular example that stands out in your mind when you think of digital poverty? Because I know as someone who is online constantly to the point where I try to find ways to not be online, I find it really hard to imagine what exactly that looks like. Yes. So one of the programs that we run distributes laptops to families in certain areas of the UK who are in need. And we receive feedback. Sometimes we go and and meet those families. And there's a particular mother who really stands out in my mind. She had been really concerned about her daughter. Her, Her education was suffering. She was well behind on her coursework. She then started to be able to borrow a laptop from school and take it home. But then she was being bullied um, for the fact that she was having to take a pool laptop from the classroom rather than having her own. They were struggling to find places where she could then take that online. They ran out of friends um, who were willing to either host the daughter to do homework in their house or who could drive her to somewhere where there was free Wi-Fi. Now... She has her own laptop. We were able to support with a connectivity package as well. It has changed her daughter's entire feeling about school on the basis that she's not being bullied anymore for taking that pool laptop. They're not having to scrounge around asking for favours in terms of support to get online. And most importantly, her reading, her coursework is really, really improving. And that, to me, just so illustrates it's not even just the binary of can you get online or not. It's the other social impact of what that means. So the Digital Poverty Alliance is sounding the alarm on digital poverty in the UK and saying it's getting worse. Tell us more about that. What exactly is going on? So as we become more reliant on technology in the UK and indeed around the world, the digital divide is really growing. 
exacerbated by what we've seen during the pandemic and the current cost of living crisis that we're facing across the country and across Europe, more and more people are seeing that they don't have the access, the devices, the connectivity, but also the skills to access the digital world, access online services in the way that they need to or indeed want to. Um, this is partly because costs are rising, and we've seen that across a number of different sectors, but including connectivity, broadband prices are really going up. Recent research found that a million people had had to give up their broadband connection, meaning that now to get online, they're either relying on um, finding public places where they can access a Wi-Fi connection or relying on data from a mobile connection, which is a very costly way of accessing the internet. A common approach to helping people get online over the past few decades has been to distribute laptops. And you said that's no longer enough. Why is it no longer enough? So laptop distribution can be a great first step. Of, of course, if you don't have a laptop, then receiving a laptop removes one barrier to getting online. However, as I said earlier, if you can't afford the connectivity package to then be able to use that, then that computer is lovely, but it won't allow you to access online services unless you travel somewhere to then be able to find public Wi-Fi. Traveling normally has a cost, particularly if you're not based in a city, if you're in a coastal or rural community of the UK, there may not be that many options where you can access that free Wi-Fi. Even more importantly, if you don't have the skills to be able to utilize that laptop, what are you going to do with it? There are around 10 million people in this country, according to Lloyds Banking Group data, that don't have the essential basic digital skills to be able to turn on and use a computer. So giving those people a laptop will not be helpful to them. And without the technical support, without the training that allows people to get the best out of that machine, it's just not enough to tackle the digital divide. So approximately 10 million people across the UK are affected. Give us more of an idea of what this group of people looks like. Is it homogenous? Is it a very different mix of people? It's um, it's not a homogenous group. So it affects all ages. It affects all strands of society. There is a sort of standing myth that it's the older generation who are the sole group of people who are affected by digital poverty. Yes, those over 75 are more likely to be offline, although a number of those um, people are by choice. Maybe they've tried it, it's not for them. What's really worrying is that we are seeing that young people, so those under 25, are becoming growingly likely to be in digital poverty, more likely than those in the middle of their career. And during the pandemic, there was some research done that showed that nearly a quarter of children, children at school who need to be able to further their education with a device, did not have a laptop or tablet that was suitable for learning. That is not a picture that is rapidly improving. So we are particularly concerned about young people and what this means for their future careers, but also what this means for um, social exclusion, particularly across all age demographics. What do you see on the horizon for the UK? I just wonder, you know, what does it mean if a country 
that is a leader in the tech industry is struggling so much with, yeah, getting its citizens online? We know that there are a number of very large corporations in the UK that already feel that there's a digital skills shortage. We are going to see that skills crisis only increase. We need to have a focus on the essential basic digital skills that people need to be able to get online. There are some fantastic programs training people up to enter the tech industry. But if you don't have a computer to be able to access those programs, you're missed out even before you even begin to try and think about engaging. But way more importantly than any of that, we have children who are missing out now in 2023 on their education. What is that going to mean for their future? We're also starting to see a gap around healthcare. Um, there are many examples around people who can't engage with the online services, telemedicine, partly because they can't service this themselves. They can't jump on the app, fill in the form and then select an appointment. They're waiting to try and get through to a really pressured NHS system. So you've got all of these different pieces that are being impacted by people not being online. And the fact that we need to be giving more support means that until that support arrives, people are being disadvantaged. Elizabeth Anderson, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. Elizabeth Anderson is the interim CEO of the UK-based Digital Poverty Alliance. She spoke with us from London. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Time for some music before we move on. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. In Mexico, poverty is a widespread problem among the country's indigenous population, with some estimates putting the poverty rate among this group at over 70 percent. One indigenous woman is trying to create a way out of poverty for her and her community by sharing its music. Reporter Marie-Christine Böse has more. Her report is presented by Anna-Sophie Brentlin. Clad in a dark red top and gold jewelry, Maria Reyna is warming up her pipes at the soundtrack for her show tonight in Mexico City. She sings in Purepecha, Miztec, and her own native language, Mike. For Maria, singing indigenous songs opens up a whole other world. Of course we can speak Spanish, but when we speak in our native language, everything's different. Our language is what shapes our view of life and of the world. It's the basis of everything. Maria is no stranger to the big stage and the fame that comes with it. After her sound check, fans approach her for a selfie. And she happily obliges. Her journey started when she left her hometown, Oaxaca, to study singing. Although she's fluent in Spanish, she always dreamt of performing in Mique. Today, she can perform in 14 indigenous languages. She's determined that they won't be forgotten. Her new goal is to sing in all 68 indigenous languages. There are languages that are in danger of extinction. Some are disappearing. It's very sad, because when a language dies, a culture dies with it. Tonight, she's going to dedicate a song to her mother in Mike. 
When I return to my home village, everything is different, because my parents don't speak Spanish. When I'm there, I speak my native language. <laughs> Some 600 kilometers away lies the mountain village of Tlahutoltepec. It's a world away from Maria's glamorous life in the big city. People here live in small homes, cluttered with basic necessities. Maria's mother beams as she and her daughter catch up over the family kitchen table. She has lived here all her life, but she always encourages her daughter to see the world. My mom says she's proud, and that it's a good thing that other people get to hear our language. Maria is known as the Mique Soprano, and her fame is rubbing off a bit on her mother too, she says. She says that people in the village sometimes approach her and ask, is that your daughter? Maria and her mother quickly settle back into their old family routine, chatting in the kitchen while preparing flatbread over the open stove. Coming from a modest background, Maria Reina had to finance her singing studies with side jobs as a maid. She hopes her success will inspire others to follow in her footsteps. I think the most special thing is to be an inspiration to other indigenous women who are pursuing their goals and dreams. There's another reason Maria has come home. She wants to wear a traditional scarf when she performs on stage in New York. She visits a local manufacturer and practices trying on the fabric around her head. Showing where she comes from is important to her. Mexicans who move to the U.S. in search of a better life risk losing their native Miki language. But Maria says music has brought her closer to her roots. Performing in traditional dress is an important part of her storytelling. Paying a visit to local artisan Diana Vasquez, Maria holds up a dark green jacket, embroidered with colorful flowers. When we go into the mountains, there are many colors and flowers that we encounter on the way. They're shown by these. But the reality in Mexico is somewhat contradictory. While indigenous cultures seem to be celebrated in public life, with markets brimming with local handicrafts, most indigenous people live in poverty, neglected by the state. Local artisan Diana Vasquez says making their work visible is key. Yes, some aspects have been forgotten. But here, thanks to people like Maria Reina, our work is made visible. Back home, with a pile of sticks strapped to her back, Maria is helping her family collect wood in the lush green forest that surrounds their village. But these days, she's also in a position to support them financially. She hopes her music will make a difference and give others the courage to follow her path. With our art, we're sowing seeds. In my case, it's with music. By singing in my native language, I want to inspire children and young people. I want to show them that it can open doors. Before Maria leaves, her family gathers for a farewell ritual. Set together on the grass, they pray to Mother Earth, her relative Luis González López explains. We ask Mother Earth that nothing happens to Maria. We pray that she's able to keep up her singing, that everything works out for her in the city. 
Back in Mexico City, Maria Reyna's concert begins with a song dedicated to her mother. Wearing a purple embroidered top and scarf, she sings that while her mother is far away, she always has her close to her heart. The mesmerized audience doesn't need to be able to understand the Miki lyrics to be moved by the magic of her singing. Anne-Sophie Brentlin with that report by Marie-Christine Böse. Turning now to Africa. Ethiopia showed remarkable economic growth during the 20-teens, but that trend has shifted over the past few years among war and inflation. And while many are now dealing with hardship, not everyone is ready to give up just yet. Reporter Carolina Imlau and Antje Dikan send this report. It's presented by Jennifer Collins. Senaid Emmanuel sets out cups for her customers. Every day, early in the morning, the young woman comes here to sell coffee, in between improvised stalls in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Senaid roasts the beans according to the traditional Ethiopian way, crushes them and then brews strong coffee for her customers. She doesn't earn all that much money from it, though. I get up at six every morning, work hard, but we have fewer and fewer customers. My husband works as well, yet we still don't have enough money to pay our children's school fees. The small market square sits beside a large construction site. Building work is common in Addis Ababa. Cranes are everywhere. More and more high-rises with shimmering facades are popping up across the city, although the government is up to its ears in debt. A few years ago, Ethiopia's economy was expanding by more than 10% annually, making it one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. But the boom slowed down when the war in Tigray in Ethiopia's north began. International funds dried up. Ethiopia's population is now worse off than before. Inflation stands at over 30% and as high as 40% for food products. Money is tight, complains newspaper vendor Gebra Medin Habra, who often ends up sitting on his stock. It's a daily struggle. My children all have an education, but they are still unemployed. And the whole family depends on my meagre earnings. Often he earns less than the equivalent of one euro a day. Like many people in Ethiopia, he has given up hope his life will improve any time soon. He can't talk for long. The other vendors here are uneasy seeing a journalist with a microphone. People in the city are afraid to speak openly about their situation. Ethiopia's population has grown rapidly in recent years. Today it's home to more than 120 million people and is the second most populous African country after Nigeria. Many Ethiopian women have children at a very early age. Sex education about birth control barely exists and the capital's population has ballooned in recent years too. The many new buildings and first tramway in sub-Saharan Africa suggest considerable prosperity in the city. In reality, much of the population is poor. 
Prime Minister Abi Ahmed, meanwhile, is having a new lavish residence built with, according to rumours, a golf course and a basketball court. The charismatic politician came to power five years ago on the promise of greater democratic freedoms and an economic upswing. But after a promising start, people's hopes were dashed, says Befkadu Hailu of the Centre for Advancement of Rights and Democracy. After his coming, the space was relatively open. The, the law, for example, the media law was revised and uh, many things have improved, uh, but, you know, they started regressing back when conflict started. In late 2020, almost exactly one year after winning the Nobel Peace Prize, Abiy Ahmed sent his troops into northern Ethiopia. A political power struggle with the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front had escalated into military conflict. In the following two years, it's estimated that up to 800,000 people died in the region. Many of them starved to death because supply routes were sealed off for long periods. Abiy, once internationally praised, was now being urged to end the violence. As criticism grew, the Ethiopian government imposed tighter restrictions on the population, says Befkadu Hailu, and when some dared to protest, Ethiopian security forces cracked down relentlessly. There are always human rights violations when the government tries to stop protesters. Under the previous government, Hailu spent almost two years in prison, where he was tortured. He was hopeful when Abiy came to power that a new era would begin. But now he's just as fearful of arbitrary state repression as he was before. He refuses to stay silent, though, despite the risks. Pretty much our story is the story of many Ethiopians who try to act within their, the obligation of their citizenry. If a citizen in an authoritarian establishment uh, tries to engage with the government critically, the government responds violently. Most Ethiopians are limited to state media if they want to find out what's happening in the world. Access to social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram or Twitter has been blocked. The government justified the internet restrictions by saying it wants to prevent the spread of misinformation on social media. But by doing so, it's violating its own constitution. There is no law that allows the government to shut the internet. There is no legal ground whatsoever for the government to disconnect the internet partially or completely. In this case, the government is the criminal blatant about it. Three young film students have gathered around a stall where a vendor is slicing and selling fresh pineapples. They say they want to create a video and upload it to YouTube. It's a way of gaining experience as film producers. But with the internet blocked, this could prove difficult, says one of the young men named Gizev Berhan. I can express myself through the videos, but somehow I feel limited. The chances of my video reaching its audience are slim, because internet access is limited. You have to use a VPN to get on social networks. VPNs disguise your online identity, 
but they are too inconvenient or too expensive for many internet users. But 19-year-old Gitu Hassan won't be deterred and wants to keep accessing social media platforms. She's using a VPN to do so, despite the costs involved. Hassan and her friends have travelled to a water park all the way from Jima, some 350 kilometres or 217 miles away, to shoot videos. I think it's great. It's very exciting. I'm from Jima. Here we can make completely different TikTok videos. Although the government's restrictions mainly target the opposition, they affect almost everyone in Ethiopia, except those investing time and money in workarounds like Gitu Hassan. For Gizev Berhan, back at the market, he just hopes his videos reach someone. It would make me happy if just a single person watches the video. I want this video to convey that even a street vendor can still change his life for the better. Coffee seller Senaid Emanuel and newspaper vendor Gebra Medin Habra, on the other hand, are far less optimistic about the future. Jennifer Collins with that report by Carolina Imlau and Anja Dikans. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen to this and other episodes of World of Progress, you can go to our website at dw.com or follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at dw.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tichtmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineers were Michael Springer and Ziad Abu Sleiman. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.